Welcome to the future of XYZ. I'm your host, Lisa Grelnick, principal and founder of LVG & Co., an independent strategy consultancy based in New York City. Through quick and candid conversations with innovative leaders, we aim to foster new thinking and explore big questions about where we are as a world and where we're going. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Future of XYZ. I am so excited to have the chance to talk with Caitlin Thompson, the publisher and co-founder of Racket, uh, which is a media company focused on the culture of tennis. Caitlin, thanks for joining us on Future of XYZ. Thank you for having me, Lisa. Um, well, it's awesome because, of course, um, the French Open, also known as a Roland Garros, is just underway um, as we head into this Memorial Day weekend. Um, finals, I think, are in like 10 days. So it's really heating up. And uh, I'm really excited because obviously as a lifelong tennis player, it's one of my favorite sports and topics. So I want to dive right in because there's there's actually, I think, during COVID been an increased attention put on the sport at least that's my impression I think statistically speaking pickleball probably outpaced tennis but I don't know that um what like just for grounding like what's your sense of the current state of the sport it's a great question and that's going to be the only time we refer to the cucumber sport related <laughs> on this in this chat just because um there's so much great stuff to talk about with tennis in the sense that it has become this really sort of a reclamation of its popularity as a recreational sport. For me, so much about what we have been trying to do with racket for the last six and a half, seven years has been to try to connect the world of amateurs and people who just like to be armchair fans or armchair, um, you know, weekend warriors with the rest of the ecosystem. And so much of tennis has been focused, especially for the last decade or so on the pro game in a way that um, frankly is a little bit tiny, right? If, if basketball was only about the NBA, it wasn't about other leagues. It wasn't about college. It wasn't about high school. It wasn't about a three on three pickup game in the neighborhood. It wasn't about sneakers. It wasn't about music and culture. You'd think, oh, what a tiny iceberg uh, tip we're looking at. But tennis has really been that. And so for me, my perspective on it is that the people who've rediscovered the joy of the game from a recreational standpoint, who may never ever set foot in a tennis stadium to watch a pro match or maybe even play a a competitive match themselves has exploded. And what I think the opportunity is at the moment is to tie that with, you know, the larger, the larger ecosystem and sort of say, Hey, we have to open a door here and make sure that the people who rediscovered it or discovered it for the first time stick around and, and can see themselves in the sport. And so that's very, very much what we're interested in from a day-to-day -day basis. Well, it's interesting because of course at racket, and I want to come back to this can see themselves in the sport. Cause I think that that is very rich territory for almost everything that's popular right now, but especially for a sport that's been as, you know, historically elitist to some degree as tennis, right? I mean, it's a traditionally country club sport, right? And there is this, the world has changed, number one, where the greats are coming from um, while still largely Western Europe and somewhat, you know, kind of the ex-British colonies, you know, if you will, um, is really relevant. But I think with you guys, with this beautiful quarterly magazine, with the podcast, with the book that came out, with kind of growing a, growing a lifestyle brand around tennis, um, the keeping access and representation at the fore becomes very important for the future of the sport, right? 
Um, what is your kind of take on, again, going to geography and the aspect of access a little bit, how is that evolving and where do you think it's going? It's a good question. And I, you know, I think if I had come up in the fifties and sixties and seventies, I would very much think of tennis as a country club sport. I would think of it as a sport that was, you know, tennis boys only potentially whites only in a way that, you know, is terribly problematic. I grew up in the eighties. And for me, this was during the tennis boom when, the public courts were packed when people were drinking water out of fuzzy tennis ball cans, when everybody was playing tennis, whether it was on a, in a movie or in a, you know, it, it, in the public park down the street. And so I feel like we've really embraced the idea because David and I, my co-founder are both, you know, late Gen X, early, whatever comes next. And for us, it's more of a, it's more of a return to that time because I think that that's when the culture was strongest. It was most interesting. It was most diverse. And I think if you look at the players that have really come to the fore, especially in the last like two decades, it's Andre Agassi, it's Serena Williams, it's, um, you know, players who didn't necessarily have, you know, a silver spoon in their mouths. The, Bonifi- Bonifi- you know, yeah. the way that, the, the way that I think they did in like certainly the twenties and thirties and forties. And so, you know, part of that is, you can look to our very first issue that came out in 2016 and some of the earliest stuff we were doing and access was and remains a huge theme because for us, it is important to keep that door open, kick it open when it hasn't been open and keep it open um, and, and open it even wider. Because I think for me, what makes the sport great and geography is part of this is the fact that it has been on the right side of history for in a way that is sort of astonishing if you think about, you know, Arthur, um, Arthur Ashe and Althea Chris Gibson Everett. being the, the first person of color to win a Grand Slam. You know, um, if you look at the history of LGBTQ um, sort of rights and access and visibility, you know, it was the first sport. It's still the, the best sport to play if you're a woman professionally mm-hmm. because of the opportunities, which yeah. speaks to geography. So I think as the sport has faced stiffer competition in the US and more people have gone into other sort of pursuits that are easier, that are, you know, less, I think, arduous to learn and to play than tennis, which is a very difficult sport. Um, you've, you've seen a rise in other people from other parts of the world where economic access is, uh, you know, to, to women's professional sport is, is limited. And tennis is a sort of a, a, an interesting way out. Like, I think the fact that there's a ton of Eastern Europeans playing and when I played college and tennis and winning, when I played college tennis, um, division one, um, I, I would say fully, I'm going to make up a number, but fully a third, maybe up to a half of the players were women from other countries, a lot of them Eastern Europe. And so I think of that as neither good nor bad. It just is a thing when you create opportunity, how are you, um, you know, how are you shaping it and how are people stepping up to it? So I think, you know, one of the responsibilities tennis has is to continue to be global, continue to be this place that you know, the dimensions of a court are the same, whether you're playing on a cow dung court in Mumbai, like I have, or, you know, a grass court in, in suburban London at Southwest 19 with the idea that, oh, this is actually sort of a one come one, come all sort of sport once you get past some of the, you know, easy access stuff. And so that to me is a much more interesting conversation to have than, oh, you know, who's, who's excellent, who's great, who's going to lift a trophy. It's more, how can we get more people into this when it actually is, is, is something that can be played in every corner of the world between people of any age, any gender, 
um, in a way that, you know, is, can be played up until, you know, they're in their nineties, right? Like that to me is really, really cool. You're not, you're not playing tackle football um, when you're an octogenarian. Um, oh, it's so- absolutely true. And, and I think one of the things that you're talking about that's so also unique, I mean, you need pretty, it's a pretty low bar for equipment once you get there, right? You need access to the court, of course. Yep. But when we, if we watch, I mean, separate and apart from the whole Will Smith thing, if we think about obviously, you know, with the, the movie, you know, King Richard and hit, you know, I grew up in LA a couple years ahead of the Williams, you know, sisters. And I remember, you know, watching that movie was so interesting, like in Compton, like really hitting these courts. And that's what you needed. You needed the the grit, you needed access, but ultimately you need a racket and some balls yep. and just a place and, and you can hit against a wall. There, there are different ways of learning. And I think one of the things that I find, you mentioned like a cow dunk court in Mumbai, we've all played, those of us who are privileged enough to be tennis players and play around the world, have played in all sorts of crazy circumstances. One thing that I think is also interesting besides the access to the equipment and to the sport is the access to the fashion. You know, I think about Lacoste and, you know, there's certain other brands that have obviously risen, but right now there seems to be kind of a growing, I want to say almost like streetwear meets tennis movement. Certainly it's happening in New York, London, Paris. I don't know if it's happening everywhere else in the world, but it's kind of wild. I mean, can we talk about the culture of tennis fashion (laughs) to, 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 to some degree? I mean, it's amazing. I remember wearing a tennis skirt uh, off the court. And it was one of the ones that you'd wear in the nineties. So like kind of polyester and like a little bit like Arancha Sanchez Vicario, like kind of high-waisted. Yeah. And I was just wearing, I think I must've found it in an old drawer. Cause I had, used to have a print sponsorship and it was an old Prince one. And somebody stopped me and they were like, Oh my God, this is like maybe six or so years ago. And I remember thinking like, Oh, I just wear tennis clothes all the time because when I, you start a tennis media company, that's like one of the privileges you get. And it's the only clothes that I would, you know, choose to be in day in and day out. <laughs> and I remember thinking like, Oh, this is going to be a thing. And then it's sort of the steady trickle. And now my Instagram is inundated with startup brands that have, you know, capsule collections, including a tennis skirt and some kind of, you know, visor and whatever. To me, it's phenomenal. And again, I think, I think about it in terms of cyclical sort of consumption patterns where it's like, obviously the world of fashion needs stuff that's new. They need to be inspired by new things. Obviously skateboards and streetwear have been sort of, you know, top of mind for the past decade, decade and a half. Like I've lived near a few Supreme stores and I don't get, uh, it's not for me, but for the men, mostly it is for, you know, they, they can't get enough and a weekly drop is, is not even enough to save their appetite for, you know, a plain t-shirt with a red bar on it. Um, that said, like one of the things I hope we, we meet the moment and by we, I mean, you know, sort of the tennis universe is to be a little bit more porous than we've been and to think about how this rising movement of recreational players, rising movement of people who like the style. And as you say, it's much more accessible to wear the clothes sometimes than to feel like you're, you know, struggling with a a ground stroke and to sort of make sure that there's room for that in the sport right now. They're two very non um, you know, non touching circles. There's a Venn diagram there where I'd like to see more um, you know, people don't want to wear, performance wear all the time, especially if it's as ugly as most of the stuff that the pros wear on the court. They want stuff that they can wear on and off the court. They can go to Erewhon, they can go to, you know, their, uh, you know, their, their social engagements, and then they can play maybe. But I think that to me is another opportunity to sort of say, hey, every opportunity we have to make the sport bigger, to make the tent bigger, to make people feel like they're reflected and just, you know, sort of in the discussion is one that we should be taking. Because the truth is like, you know, tennis for me represents this really, really um, sort of pure 
space where it's so difficult that you get your, you know, you sort of get to a meditative place. But also I was taught by my grandmother who picked it up um, post after she retired as a nurse. And she used to play with me every morning when she was, um, you know, smoking a Benson and Hedges. And you know, <laughs> my mom, she still comes off the court and has one. Totally. And I feel like for me, that that is the epitome of tennis where you're spending time with with other people and you're having a fun recreational experience. Maybe one of you is going to be good or maybe there's a competitive aspect to it, but it doesn't have to be. But so mean, for me, that is sort of, it, it's sort of tied to the fashion idea. It's sort of tied to this recreational idea. It's tied to this narrative idea and representation where it's just as valuable to be stepping foot into this world, whether you're, you know, going to get all the gear and sign up for the tournaments and try to, you know, play professionally, or if you're just trying on a skirt, you know what I mean? It's all Absolutely. valid. Well, and it's been interesting to see, I mean, I know that you don't want to really talk about like the top 10 and who's coming <laughs> up and whatever, but I mean, it is interesting. You know, I think, um, you know, Sissy Boss recently, you know, made a comment who, you know, many of us love the Greek, like great right now, you know, talking about the fact that it's been the Federer, you know, Rafa Nadal, um, you know, Djokovic trifecta in the men's singles world for the last 10, 20 years, they each have 20 grand slam titles. And, you know, I mean, it's really been that game. And of course there've been a couple of people who have interloped, but like Sissy Boss is saying, like, I think that the future of tennis over the next decade is going to be six to eight. And it's just going to, because there's such a deep bench coming up. Right. And of course, there's also Rafa's recent comment about like, it's just getting faster and faster through technology, through training, through nutrition. And that being the expectation is harder on the body. So actually people are, you know, falling out. I mean, Mm -hmm. there are a lot of players who are not showing up to the French Open this year because of injuries, right? This has been an ongoing, this has always been a thing, but perhaps it's the cycle is faster with women as well. I mean, you see the younger girls who are coming up and it's really exciting and you have mental health issues that go along yeah. with the pressures of being that good and that on stage. I mean, Naomi Osaka is a great example, right? Very public about her mental health challenges. Meanwhile, she's the highest paid athlete in mm-hmm. the world, right? Totally. So I think that there's something really interesting about this, as you say, the culture and the privilege and the health and well-being aspect of tennis as a, you know, let's call it a spectator slash amateur sport. Right. And and then and and the community sport. And then there's this like super high money, super high pressure, the four grand slams, right? We yeah. started with Australian Open in January. We have French Open now, Wimbledon in July, and then US Open among t- dozens of other tournaments that happen interspersed. I mean, what do we think that kind of like, as you said, the Venn diagram on like culture and fashion, but like what's the what's the intersection between like the pro and the money in that? Yeah you know, mixed as it grows in popularity as well, mixed with kind of like the average, yeah. the average player who, who aspires to greatness. I mean, you went to college on a, on a tennis scholarship, right? I did. Yeah. I feel like there's like maybe 20 ways I could answer that question. There the might've one... been 20 questions in it too. So <laughs> well, I think the one that, it, that strikes me as being like sort of the most, the one that might like sort of tie those ideas together is this idea that in the 70s and 80s, especially the 70s and 80s, although at other times too, there really was this feeling that the world of tennis, the pro part of that world was filled with a variety of personalities, of styles, of dispositions. There were villains, there were heroes, there were, you know, um, fashion plates, there were, um, you know, bad boys, there were sort of activists. And to me, that was a really rich place that has always 
been what's cool about sports, which is there's no one right way to play it. And any sport, whether it's an individual sport like tennis or boxing or, uh, you know, a massive team sport where you get a ton of personalities in one place, it's just that there's going to be this really interesting variety. And I think what a missed opportunity of the sport has been as this big three, and if you want to include maybe Serena as the big four, from a marketing perspective, from a storytelling perspective, they have taken up all of the oxygen in the room. And it's not their fault. They're great. Um, you know, not Rafa might take issue with the fact that you didn't give him his 21 grand slams because he has 21 now. Um, you know, but for the most part, they've taken up all the oxygen and their the game has been marketed towards their greatness, towards their stardom, towards their inevitability. And it's created this very, very on one hand, um, you know, sort of epic narrative um, practice. On the other hand, I think it's really robbed the sport of its variety. It's robbed the people practicing it, their sort of time in the sun. And it's given everybody who doesn't maybe relate to one of those people or doesn't necessarily wanna see the same people winning week in and week out or like the types of games that they play, which now tend to favor the sort of marathon artists over the sort of shop maker, you know, fabulists. Uh, it, it's really robbed the sport of a lot of its depth. And I think what's amazing about this moment, which is why I tie it to fashion and culture and history, is it doesn't have to be this way. It can be this rogues gallery. It can and should be a different voice winning. It doesn't have to be, just because you've never heard of the player doesn't mean they're coming from nowhere to win, right. this, you know, to win a title. They've, they've been training for a decade plus in every circumstance. Yeah. Even an Emirati Kanu who won a US Open at age 18 and might win another slam, maybe not, but it doesn't matter. You know, this is one of the many voices and flavors and, and folks that you get on this traveling circus of tours that tends to hit every cool spot in the world at all these beautiful varied surfaces and clubs and courts and um, public facilities in some cases. And that's the beauty of the sport. And that's what's relatable about it. What's relatable yeah. about it is that in any day, anybody can beat anybody else. And when you have these three, on the men's side, sort of superhuman, but also um, the game has been gamed to help them win because the marketers know how to sell them because IMG wants them to succeed because yeah. the tournaments know it's easier to sell tickets when they're in it, as opposed to something harder, which is, hey, we're going to sell the game on the game itself. And by the way, the game itself is something that you can play or you can get into or you can, you can watch. It's a much more nuanced, difficult world to illustrate through storytelling and through marketing, but it's a much richer one. And it's one that makes the sport and frankly, like the larger universe much, much better. And so one of the things that we saw immediately upon sort of approaching tennis and my partner, David and I don't come from the world of tennis. Obviously we both, you know, play recreational at, at this point, you know, decently well, but we had been journalists in other arenas for 15 years before we started this together. And one of the immediate lacks we saw was just everybody wanted to talk about the same thing in any ecosystem. You talk about the one, one thing only yeah. is going to be underserved, underrepresented, Pretty, it's going to get pretty boring pretty fast. And the yeah. people who have their thumbs on the scale to make that, to make money off of that and attention off of that are not going to give that landscape up easily. And so we took a dramatically different approach where we were saying, hey, Benoit Pair is just as good as Roger Federer. Is he as good as a player? Certainly not. Is he as good a marketer and endorser? No. But for my money, watching a match, I, I would argue that's way more entertaining than watch, watching him like beat up on a tomato can in the first round. Where, you know, Benoit Pair, is he going to get out of the first set alive? Is he going to break 20 rackets? Is he going to hit a 
approach shot. Well, uh, Nick Curios is a great example tweet. of that, right? Nick I mean, Curios is another example. The, per, exactly. the, per, the personalities, and and right. I think that's why people love, you know, the Coco Graphs of the world, like the 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 young, hungry, or the fighter, or the Andy Murray. You know, like I mean, people really love. I think the psychology of it, and of right. course, Agassi wrote a great book. You know, the inside game of tennis, and for any of us tennis players, like. You know, it is. It's largely, obviously, the training. Yeah. The, the the training also takes place in here, and I think that's what is also relatable yeah. to the average person. I think that book, Open, that Agassi wrote, um, was one of the best sports books ever because it really displayed him as a 360-degree human. And you mentioned Naomi Osaka earlier. It is interesting that she's the highest-paid female athlete by several orders of magnitude, but also has only played a couple of matches this year and probably you know, by, by all accounts might be sort of stepping out of the sport sometime soon. I think that's sort of, I, we did an issue with her. She guest edited an issue of racket last year. Um, I admire her tremendously. She's an incredible sort of joiner of worlds between obviously her Haitian, her Japanese and her American heritage. She's into fashion. She's an investor. She's into all these different things. On the other hand, when you sign a lot of checks, you're going to come, it's going to come with a lot of scrutiny. And I think marketing yourself in the traditional ways brings that sort of pressure yes. in, a, in, in the sense that if you look at something that, um, you know, some of these other players are doing where they'll maybe invest in smaller companies and endorse them, but they also have equity in the company that gives you this idea that your value is not tied to your results in a way that is freeing and tennis, yes. unlike most other sports, because you're out there alone really does feel like a bit of a pressure chamber in in the higher echelons of the game that's certainly what i experienced and i didn't get close to being a professional so i think for me what's interesting about tying these sort of sponsorships and mental health and new ways of doing business and different ways of approaching the sport are all tied together which which is the old narratives have only served a few people and there's so much room for more and newer and better and the things that I'm excited about, which is why it was so exciting to have this conversation, is the future doesn't have to look like what it's been. We can look to the past, as I do, like I said, the 60s, 70s, 80s, as this inspiration and take from it the best, the best parts, but also, you know, continue to innovate so that I can, I can see, uh, you know, a broader or more sort of inclusive or exciting or at the very least new sort of sort of world that you know we can kind of create and that's really where we draw a lot of our inspiration like wouldn't it be cool if and i think that is the right question as opposed to like what's this person doing or what's this media company doing or how are how are you know how how's this being sort of covered it's more like okay but what if we don't have to take any of those things as 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 table stakes what if we can start you know start over and i think when you have an independent media company that's like the one thing you're allowed to do well, and you guys, I mean, I want to wrap us up. You have the podcast, obviously, with your co-host, Renee Stubbs, who, you know, is a TV commentator, a former Australian pro player. Um, it's super, and a, and a coach in Australia still. I mean, it's a super fun podcast and this irreverence, I think, but oh, irreverence in the sense of culture, but this reverence for the courts is kind of how your tagline comes together where culture and the courts meet. And I really love that about racket in specific. And, um, you know, I think there's so many other topics, you know, we didn't even get to so many, but uh, for the future of tennis, I love the idea of being able to ask some questions that others aren't asking and, uh, and really finding that representation in all of us that can, can adore a sport, both, you know, on the courts as spectators or as players or, or, or anything in between. So Um, Caitlin, thanks for joining us on the future of tennis. Thank you, Lisa. 
Um, and anyone watching, listening, if you don't already subscribe to Future of XYZ, make sure you do. Uh, we're available on YouTube or any of your favorite streaming podcast platforms. Uh, you can also follow Future of XYZ on Instagram and Racket on Instagram as well. Um, and visit future-of.xyz if you or someone you know would like to be a future guest. Uh, enjoy uh, the French Open, everyone, and your whole summer tennis playing season. Take care. Thanks again, Caitlin. Thanks for listening to the Future of XYZ. If you like what you've been hearing, please follow Lisa Grelnick on LinkedIn. Visit future-of.xyz or subscribe to the Future of XYZ podcast on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts.